Welcome to the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so uh, we are finishing up the wonderful and a little bit crazy book of Ezekiel and then going into another, uh, at times, uh, a bit uh, image-rich uh, book in Daniel. And so uh, hopefully you enjoyed finishing up Ezekiel and starting Daniel uh, this week. And so... Um, there are multiple chapters in this back end of Ezekiel that includes the, the conversation in the temple. And uh, I just want to kind of f- say a few more thoughts. And sometimes I just kind of talk through the narrative and don't do a whole lot of in- interpretive stuff. Sarah's certainly the one who provides a lot of that helpful insight. Um, but there are ways that um, people have taken this temple passage and really used it to, to, in very, very extreme literal ways. And, um, and, and I want to, I want. I just want to make a few statements uh, around that, and and how um, I, I tend to interpret this section, uh, which may not match other things you hear in other writings in terms of, uh, because some will take this passage that uh, we need to go and take this blueprint and go build this literal um, temple in Jerusalem right now. And if we build that temple, then the Messiah will suddenly show up. We'll have this thousand year reign, and then eventually the the end of all things. And um, and it's hard because Ezekiel has enough sort of clues in this text that um, that we should be cautious around a very literalist interpretation. Uh, there's all sorts of things missing. We don't know the heights of anything in this description. We don't know. There's no roof on the building. There's no. Um, there's not even things for the priests to cleanse themselves with. There's like there's a lot of things that are missing uh, in this. There's disproportionate, um, like the gatehouses are ridiculously larger than the temple itself. Like there's all this stuff that, that, that Ezekiel uses. That's very, very image rich uh, as he sort of sees this stuff that if you were to form a blueprint of this, you'd end up with like the wonkiest weird looking building as possible. Um, and not only that, but when they, the Israelites go to rebuild the temple soon after their return to Babylon, they don't, they don't try to follow any of Ezekiel's image. And so uh, there was at least amongst them an understanding that Ezekiel's vision was simply that in some ways, a vision. Um, and, and so it gets into, okay, what do we, what do we do with this? What do we, how do we interpret this whole multiple chapters describing with some detail this, this vision. And so um, we'll, we'll go through this, but it becomes interesting because you eventually end up with these new Testament writers who start talking about the temple and they, they connect Jesus to the temple. He, he's the tabernacle and his body is going to, his body's going to be this temple. Um, he's going to tear down and destroy the temple in Israel or at, in Jerusalem and in three days rebuild it. Um, and then also the, the new church becomes this idea of the temple. Um, so I want to just spend a moment or two just unpacking just the, the grandness of that because this temple theme exists in all of scripture. And Sarah, you can certainly participate. I don't want to just keep talking, talking, but um, like from, from Genesis on out, we have this idea of a temple. Like this is where God dwells with his people. That is a temple and Eden has these temple like things that sort of get or vice versa that we get temples sort of create these things that connect us back to the garden, Uh, both the tabernacle and the temple have all these things that sort of connect us to this idea that the temple and, and Eden itself is this place where God dwells with his people. And so when Ezekiel has a sort of vision of this temple, um, it's a reestablishment, I think of God coming and dwelling again with his people. Now, 
the New Testament writers start picking up on the idea of temple quite a bit. I mean, you have Peter, you have Paul and, and Corinthians. You have multiple sections of scripture where they start going, you know, we, we. It's almost like they looked at the Pentecost event and years later kind of reflect back going, no, no, no. We, our bodies, the, mm-hmm. the people of the church are the temple now. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the, the thing that is laid that becomes sort of the guiding post of what this temple is going to be, but we are all the, the pieces of this. We are all the, the stones that, that make up the temple now. And so um, I, I tend to take an interpretive take on this, and, and this is my interpretation, so take it for what it is, but that Ezekiel's having this vision. He doesn't understand this, the New Testament perspective on this, but he sees this vision of one day there, there's this temple, and, and there's a lot about it that's, that's almost overly grandiose, which happens a lot in Ezekiel. It, it's what we call like cosmic in scale. It is um, both the heavenly and the earthly realities and like this, this visual state, this visual picture of what's really going on in the universe behind uh, sometimes even what we can see. So the, the great battle between good and evil, stuff like that. And we speak of those in sort of a cosmic scale, this grandiose, everything that's true and real kind of scale. And so Ezekiel has this vision of the temple. He, he sees that um, there's a reestablishment of the priest. There's a reestablishment of sacrifice. There's a, a, a reestablishment of all those things in such a way that God is going to dwell again. Like what God has called the people to be will be fully established and will exist in such a way that God can dwell in his people. And the overflow of that will be taking things that are dead and bringing them to life. And so um, we'll talk through all those pieces in a moment, but very much that idea that can be traced is we, we get that. And I think the New Testament writers really pick up on that, that we have that now, that that we had uh, the true priest finally come who was going to pro- provide the true and best sacrifice so that God can now dwell with his people in such a way that is unique. And the overflow of that, well, they they will be living out what God has actually called them to and think, taking things from life to death. And so um, there... I, I would argue Ezekiel certainly doesn't understand that, but at the same time, I think the New Testament writers pick up a lot of pieces of Ezekiel's language around this temple and start bringing it into their context to go, okay, God has rebuilt the temple and it happened at Pentecost and, and he is still building this temple and it is God dwelling now on earth in a almost new kind of cosmic way. It's not just a building. It is more grand than that. It is greater than that. And and that's what we're sort of seeing in, in ways, particularly as New Testament people, we kind of read back into Ezekiel to interpret some of this. Yeah. So I think for us to look and read and sort of interpret Ezekiel well, we need to look at it within the grand scheme of the stories of scripture we read. We follow these themes of of temple, uh, like we see in Genesis 1 and 2 and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and Revelation and Acts, all these places. And so when we have this understanding of what the temple has looked like up until now, and when we have an understanding of what the temple looks like further into the New Testament, then we will better be able to understand what God is doing here through giving Ezekiel this vision. Yeah. And it's the same with this idea of creation and decreation, which we see patterns of over and over through scripture. And, and there's a component of that here with the temple as well. So as you read through it, or as you consider back to Ezekiel even, remember that this is a story that is being told not just for those people at that time, but for all of us to understand the grand scheme of what God is doing in the world he created and in the world to come through his scriptures. Right. Again, And I love that, like what Ezekiel sees is 
he's not told go build this. It's almost like God is going to create this thing and he's telling his eco, go tell people about this. Yeah. Um, that's very different. And, um, and that's what we're going to see certainly by Jesus's death and, and resurrection is this idea that God now builds his temple, how he's going to do it. And it's not, it's not up to us to build some physical temple in Jerusalem. It is God building his temple by every soul he brings uh, into the fold. Yeah. And so, uh, but we do get pictures of sort of the restoration of a of a functioning, obedient temple, and we start seeing uh, the chambers start being made where the the offerings are going to be, and the priests and their clothes, and uh, this wall that separates the holy from the common things. Mm-hmm. All this stuff starting to to take place. And then what's key here is the next thing we see is that the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Yeah, um, and and. And it's interesting that he kind of comes back from the East. Uh, and, and once again, there, I think there's some symbolism to that. Certainly at the beginning of the book, he left going to the East, but, um, it's, it's important that as Jesus comes to Jerusalem himself, he comes from the Mount of Olives. There's this picture of a return to the temple area from the East of God. And so, um, we even get some of that that the New Testament writers, I think, metaphorically use. There's a command in here that says, describe to the house of Israel, the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. And it just made me think that sometimes instead of pointing out what is wrong, what we as believers need to do is to cast a vision to the broken world around us or believers around us of a better picture and what will be and what could be to come. And that is going to bring about repentance and change and longing to be part of this great redemptive work that God is doing in the world around us. And there's an altar and there's sort of the the process of um, purging, reconsecrating this altar through this blood and all this kind of stuff that's, that's put there so that uh, it can be cleansed in such a way that God can um, dwell in this place again. Okay, so yeah, so we're 43 chapters into Ezekiel here, and the majority of those chapters, not all of them, but most of them have been some sort of judgment or condemnation for their sin, uh, seeing the altar itself and the temple at the beginning of Ezekiel be fully defiled. And then God says in this section, I will accept you, declares the Lord. So stop for a moment and think of after everything they have done, the abominations in the temple, like worshiping and sacrificing to other gods, the rejection of God, the abuse and murder of his image bearers, he still makes a way and provides a path for people to find acceptance in him. That is just astounding. And then there's this prince or sometimes Ezekiel kind of uses prince and king interchangeably uh, character. Um, He's a bit of an enigma. Uh, at times he has these sort of like messiah kind of connections to, to who he is and what he's doing. At times, if you take a very literal approach to that, um, Jesus doesn't just like, it doesn't make sense for the messiah to, to be that role, but uh, there's something to it. Is it angelic? Is it a, a literal political figure? Is it something like that? It's hard to tell, but um, there's this sort of character now that will be exist. And so to Ezekiel, it's likely that he is seeing a, a reestablishment of the priesthood, maybe a reestablishment of some sort of political leader, which once again can easily be Jesus for both of those characters. Mm, He just doesn't fully understand that yet because God's giving him a vision in the context that he understands and he knows. Yeah. And so there's a reestablishment of the priestly system. Um, We will certainly see in Jesus kind of taking on the role of a priest as well. Yeah. And then the prince comes back up. 
instructions for the prince to be content with the land he owns and to focus on justice and righteousness. Yeah, there's 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 a restoration of justice and right practices that the things that are measured are correct and uh, festivals are reestablished and we get language from Leviticus here of sort of the the reestablishment of things. And there's a reiteration of Passover as well, but in Exodus when we read about the Passover, it talks specifically about how death has passed over Israel, but this form of Passover, this talking about it emphasizes much more strongly the atonement for sin that's required. Yep. Um, and then the prince and his feast, there's just more descriptions of basically the temple functioning the way it was always meant to function and what God has actually called them to do, uh, both both in their sort of feasts and practices as well as like the boiling of the fats and stuff that the priests have to do as well. Yep. And then one of the probably coolest images I think included in this rebuilding of this temple is this like water that flows from the, the temple itself. And it goes down all the way down to um, basically the area where the Dead Sea is. The salty Dead Sea will be uh, made less salty in a way that um, and the image and the language here it almost feels Edenic. Like uh, it's like the Eden uh, it's taking what is dead and arid mm-hmm. and making it uh, like Eden. There'll be growth and life and flourishing. Yeah. And then we get a division of the lands. Um, and it's important to even note the, the language here is that, yes, there's the 12 tribes that all get their division of lands, but it also includes those who are foreign uh, that are brought in to be inheritors. So the Jews and the Gentiles are sort of identified as the inheritors of this land. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the gates of the city is sort of wrap up of the book. And it's Jerusalem sort of basically called the Lord or Zion's called the Lord is there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's once again, this like literal reading, I, I think there's so much more to see this sort of metaphoric, like if the Lord is now dwelling in our bodies, like that is a statement we get to make that the Lord is here. Like he is with you. He is in us and, and how mind blowing. And yet, um, what an, what an honor and privilege like the first century people were when, when they're trying to understand like our bodies and the church itself is the temple of God, how unique that really was that the, that, that the spirit is here and it dwells in us. And, and for you as a believer, like for you to get your head around the fact that, that our, our bodies are where God dwells and where people can come and meet God and, and where God might use to work his power and to be his witness to what he's like and who he is. And, and that's who we are now. The, that, that image of the temple of the place where heaven meets earth, like is, is you. Um, and, and I think sometimes we, we discount how beautiful and profound that really is. Yeah, I just love how the book of Ezekiel ends with this promise of God's presence and that uh, Jerusalem really kind of will be a city where God dwells or this temple. Well, I mean, and compare it to Revelation 22, where we see God dwelling among his people. I think this ending does really lift the heads of the exiles, Mm -hmm. give them encouragement. And even exiles like us to remember that what we see right now, what we're living is not the end, but there will be a place where we will dwell face to face really with God. Yeah, it's just, it's a book filled with so much hope. Um, and I think it's a tremendous book to, to kind of walk through and maybe there's sections that felt a little more like a drudge drudging through, but the, the sort of opening of like, look, everyone, we lost our land. God left his temple, but God's still on his throne. And as he goes, like, I've seen it. And it's the sort of this almost more cosmic. It's not a, a literal one, but like he's in the heavens in his throne and it's mobile and it can move around. He's not confined to just Jerusalem and Israel, like many gods at their time were, it's like, so we're in exile. Like 
it's not Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. It's God. And, and Jerusalem has been destroyed and it's because of our sin. We messed up bad. God's using the Babylonians to remind us of that. And there were nations that gloated in that process. And God's going to deal with that. God doesn't just overlook injustice as well. And God's going to have his battle with evil and he's going to win. And he's going to restore all things with a new temple that looks different than any other temple we've had up to this point. And God will defeat his cosmic enemy and dwell with his people again. And that's good news. These people in exile so desperately need to hear so much of that message. So one of the Bible study methods or tools you can use is look at the beginning and the end of a book. Sometimes you'll see really clear themes that are articulated at the beginning and the end. We see that in Mark, but we see it in Ezekiel, and it has to do with this idea of God's presence among his people throughout the book of Ezekiel as a theme. So from God having wheels to travel with Israel into exile to commentary on God being present among his people again, I feel like Ezekiel so well captures uh, what was, what is, and what will be. And the undercurrent of it all is that he brings life out of places that are impossibly dead. And along with that theme is the, is the fact that we are never so far gone from God that we cannot return to or be restored to him. So if you think that God doesn't want you or you think there's part of you that is unacceptable to God, just consider the nation of Israel. Consider how God made a way and a better home and a temple for them despite their awful sin. I feel like I have such a better sense of the glory and the holiness of God and his longing to dwell with us through this study of the book of Ezekiel once I made it to the end. Yeah. The middle was hard yeah. for me. Yeah, there are definitely some moments uh, where it gets repetitive and a little bit more hard to work through. But um, yeah, I think it's such a rich book and, and a book I think that has more New Testament ties than we care to admit. Um, and then uh, moved into the book of Daniel, uh, though we're covering the most non-controversial section of Daniel, which is chapter one. Uh, and so um, it's a unique book. It, it's, a, it's a unique book even historically considered uh this book doesn't exist in the prophets uh in in the hebrew bible um so that should give you a tip that this book's a little bit different even though we tend to think of the prophet daniel um that is considered wisdom literature and it's divided really into two big sections um and and some of that's in the language uh, half the books in hebrew half the books in aramaic uh and chapters two through seven and eight through eleven and we'll cover this when we get to those chapters are, are like two large chiasms in and of themselves and then the whole book from two to eleven becomes one large chiasm with uh, a, a point in the middle and so um it, it's it's hard sometimes to date this book it certainly is taking place in terms of the, the content of the book in the sixth century like this is in Babylon and stuff like that. Now, when this book finally gets formed and how it gets used in the life of the Israelites is another story. Um, and there's a whole lot of debate around it. And so, um, yeah. Any other thoughts? I would just say, if you don't typically watch the Bible project videos, this is a great, great one. It brought me a lot of insight as I prepared to study it. And I actually watched it at the beginning and at the end of my study of the book. Uh, and the other theme to look for is just what it looks like to live faithfully as exiles in a foreign land. That is what we are. It's kind of like, I don't know, the Old Testament version of, of Peter, maybe of Peter's letters in yeah. the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, Peter certainly picks up on the idea of being exiles in Babylon. And so, um, but we're taken right into the story, right from from the get go, that Nebuchadnezzar uh, kind of does a standard war strategy, which is taking some of the royal, the well educated, bring them back, start having them assimilate into Babylonian culture, that ultimately they would lose their identity in that process. Um, that That's that's a total tactic uh, in terms of how to deal with a people group uh, that you've just conquered. And so, this is the attempt here. And by the way, I, 
I don't know why we're always in the habit. Maybe it's because of Veggie Tales or things like that that we always refer to the three as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We basically use, in a lot of ways, their slave names uh, as opposed to their Hebrew names. Uh, but maybe I'll advocate that we do that more often of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. <laughs> and then Daniel, who we keep his Hebrew name. Yeah. Somehow um, he stays. Yeah. And, and Sarah brought up a good point. I don't know if you want to talk about it. Like, Titling the book Daniel can affect how we read this book because so much about this book is really not that much about Daniel. Yeah, I'll talk about that in my next week and what to look for <laughs> next week. All right, my bad. Um, but we do see Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah remain faithful to the Torah while in Babylon. And I'm really impressed with them in this. I mean, they just saw their whole city get decimated. They were probably super traumatized from the brutality that Jerusalem went through and all of that. And then they get put in this position where they're given a lot of what they need and really have a chance to be successful. And yet they choose within that to remain faithful and obedient to Yahweh, who they feel like may have abandoned them, but they still remain faithful to him in this new place. Yeah. And they start moving up in rank and Nebuchadnezzar notice. And then we're given a little bit of a, a, a tip of hat in some ways by this author who says, Daniel lives past Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Cyrus. And so um, we, we at least are told, and it kind of ruins any sort of story, like uh, when they arrest Daniel and, and do things like that, that Daniel's actually ever really in trouble uh, when he lives past all the Kings that exist in the story. Uh, but we'll transition uh, to those Kings starting next week. New Testament. Yeah. Uh, and so we're finishing up second Timothy. It's really sort of the send off section. And I love the little send off here. I actually had to teach through this uh, right before COVID hit. Um, and he marks like all these different relationships that he has with people. He's talking about people that abandoned him. There are those that like he loved, but that sent away from ministry, someone like Titus and others. And then he's begging for Timothy to come and visit him. And then he sort of mentions that there's, there's Mark who was useful to him in ministry. And I, I hope, I hope the Mark he's talking about is the Mark that um, basically there was like a split in the early church leadership over this guy named Mark and whether or not Mark, sort of wasn't up to snuff or uh, in Barnabas and, and Paul sort of in some ways felt like had this bit of a falling out. And I hope it's this restored relationship with this Mark. And if so, that that's just rich that we, we get this hint of a restoration of that. But, um, and there's a warning against a, whatever it was, coppersmith, silversmith, I forget which one, um, who has likely been the one who's probably gotten Paul in trouble. And so if Timothy comes, watch out for that guy. Yeah. I love the promise in this section where Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And again, we see Paul's eyes and heart lifted heavenward as he faces very tangible and physical struggles. He's felt lonely and he's felt deserted, but his needs have continued to be met through the presence and faithfulness of God to him and with him. This is a good encouragement for all of us in those times that we feel lonely or abandoned or we're not sure we're going to make it. Even Paul, knowing that his death is coming soon, is finding comfort in God's faithful work to bring him to his heavenly kingdom. Yeah, I almost like the the image. Of, I mean, Paul's basically talking like, look, I went on trial and no one, none of my friends were there to be like with, witnesses or present with me. He's like, but I wasn't alone. Like God was there with me in the midst of this. And so um, there's sort of this like picture that like he always feels like God's kind of right at his side. Mm, yeah. Final thoughts? Uh, 
I really appreciate hearing, hearing Paul's final thoughts and perspectives. He regrets nothing of his sufferings or struggles because of the gospel. And that's such a good lesson to me. Uh, and then he continues to focus on the main thing, which is loving Christ's appearing and being ready for every good work, which he says multiple times throughout the book. So I want to approach my gospel conviction and, and my ministry or just my, my life of obedience like a soldier or an athlete or a farmer. And that analogy really helps me with perspective of remembering what matters and living towards that every single day. Yeah. And I really like to sort of, yeah, that end of life feel to Paul's parting words here and, and almost the pastoral plea that he has to this boy that feels like his son in some ways that Timothy step into your calling. Like you've got this, like, and if suffering comes with it, that's part of it. That's part of following Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me or anybody who suffers, follow Jesus. And it may come with a cost, but in the process, you know what? Correct the false teachers. Trust in the word that's been implanted with you. Finish the, the jobs God called you to and visit if you can. And so it just feels like such a, a personal parting and um, speaking as a guy who who most men like struggle with like daddy approval and stuff like that. And Timothy, certainly, we don't even know if his dad ever came to faith or anything like that. Like this is such deep words and good words for Timothy to hear of from this father like figure to just say, you've got it. Just keep keeping on. It's almost like his dad coach in this final phase of his life. Yeah. And then intro to Jude. Um, this is, uh, a unique book, hopefully, as you read through it and you're like, what is he talking about? Who is Enoch? And what is going on in these stories? Um, Jude is writing to a Jewish crowd. He's a Jewish writer who seems to be well-versed in Jewish writings and teachings. Um, and sometimes people get a little bit worried that Jude includes things that are not scripture and tells them as part of his letter and scripture stories, but Jude is using the tools and the stories and the context to explain to these people kind of what's going on. And so um, I, I wouldn't get up in arms and it. And I also don't think you have to go through and read all the stuff that Jude might be quoting. Um, but it's good to help. It's helpful sometimes to know, all right, Jude is bringing in his outside stories and we'll talk about those in a moment. Right. And the thing for us to pull back and remember, even if we don't understand all the references or don't have time to dive into what the sons of God or whatever is, uh, we can see that there are themes through repeated words like the ungodly and ungodliness and mercy and being kept and, and beloved. And so we can get to what Jude's point is in writing the letter, even if we don't fully understand or haven't dove all the way into the context behind what he's saying. Yeah. But, but I think a number of the examples are actually not from those third parties. And so um, if you, if you, or know your scripture. Sometimes it's just helpful to be like, all right, Balaam, who was Balaam again? What did he do? Yeah. And just taking that moment to, to go, okay, all right, that what connects Balaam and Cain and Korah? What were they all like? And so uh, sometimes taking those moments is helpful, but I understand there's, there's a lot of reading to do. And so, uh, but we get the intro. He's the brother of James. Is this the same James that's related to Jesus? Probably. Uh, but uh, a little bit of that has to be guesses. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, we see initially our three of our repeated words show up right away in the first two verses, how we're beloved, we're kept in the Lord, and we've received his mercy. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the big chunk uh, is sort of the, the, the speaking about these false teachers, and then sort of the, the next is sort of that call to respond to that. And speaking of these false teachers, I, th I think there's a, a, a bit of a uh, construct that, that, that Jude is really playing out. Um, and, and we see, uh, 
kind of things grouped in almost threes. Uh, we, we see examples of rebellion and God's justice in response to that. So he speaks of Israel and the wilderness and angels. Uh, and this is where he brings in first Enoch, but um, the rebellious angels and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, sort of like their brokenness. So he says, look, there's, it's almost like J- uh, Judas saying, look, there's these teachers and they're false teachers and they're using their teaching to indulge their own sensuality and, and leading others astray. They're rebelling and they're rebelling in ways that's almost sexual in nature. And so these themes of rebellion and particularly those that related to sex, like uh, sort of the, the first Enoch Genesis six section and Sodom and Gomorrah are all there. And, and so there's, there's sort of this teaching that, Hey, we've had, we've had corruption like this before. And God certainly answers that. And it's just, and, and, and there's conversation around Moses and Michael. And once again, this is out of a, an extra biblical book, the Testament of Moses. And, and it really has to do with those who are accusing God's messengers of not being God's messengers. And so likely these teachers are doing that too. And then, um, and then we get a trio of examples in Israel's past of those who have rebelled against God and have brought ultimately others or families with them. And so we have someone like Cain, we have someone like Balaam and someone like Korah who rebelled and then caused all sorts of people, uh, consequences in the midst of that. And, and so I think this, this Jude is saying, all right, we know these stories and we know what false teachers can do and how they can lead more and more people astray. So stay away from they're like, and he uses multiple examples, shepherds who are feeding themselves like Ezekiel waterless clouds, like in Proverbs or these wild waves, they bring destruction like in Isaiah. And so Jude is bringing all of this in to go like, these are false teachers. We've seen it before. The apostles have warned us about this kind of stuff. And, and so we need to pay attention and he's doing it in sort of these almost beautiful poetic ways of connecting all these old stories that they know to their current moment. It's kind of this idea of history repeating itself and he's saying, remember the history. So for us, we have to remember that there are false believers in our midst and their actions are going to prove the genuineness of these individuals. So consider first yourself. The clear example of these false believers is that they show up and they practice church, but their life and their words are fruitless and they show ungodliness rather than godliness. So reflect on your own heart and life. What is the fruit? Where do you struggle with some of these behaviors? And the difference with the false believers is that they don't acknowledge their sin and they have no desire to change and be aware as well of other people in the world around you who claim Christ, but don't display the fruit of a true believer. We need to be on guard against this. And as followers of Christ, those who are indwelt by the Holy spirit, we, we would and should, or will and should know and be able to recognize false believers. Yeah. So there's just this call to persevere that look, we've seen this problem before this problem today. We need to keep persevering. We need to contend for our faith as he sort of starts with. And that includes building ourselves up in prayer, staying in the love of God, waiting on the mercy of Jesus when when he returns to like sort of keep looking forward. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's kind of three instructions here. And the idea of perseverance is not foreign to us who've been in the New Testament for a lot. But basically, when you are a beloved believer in Christ, you're to remain faithful to God. You're to lead others to salvation and you're to hate sin. And he prays for protection, that God is a protector and the keeper of his people. So, yeah. So God, through Christ, remember, is going to keep you. You are kept now and forever. It all comes back to him and his work. We will do what we can, and we have a role to play, but re- a role to play. But resting on the finished work of Christ is what keeps us from stumbling. It's it's up to him. Yeah. Um, and, and final thoughts? 
So I like the emphasis on the sovereignty and the work of God in this book and even the idea of just being kept in it, which makes me think of Psalm 121, which we also read this week. When we understand the spiritual battle going on in the world around us, it can be overwhelming and and scary. But the charge here is to build yourself up in faith individually and also through community and to remember God's mercy and all things, all glory and honor and dominion and majesty belong to him. And Jude points that out to us really well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I like that. I mean, Jude has very little to say about the te- the actual teaching and theology of these people. Um, it, it feels less corrective of their message and more corrective of how they are actually living, that they're not living holy ways. And so um, I like that Jude is, is bringing that to the forefront of going like, look, false teachers, yes, they can be false teachers by what they say, but they can also be false teachers by how they live and, and making sure that we are understanding, particularly in this world of platform and podcast and everything else of people, we have no clue who they are, um, that, that ability to go, okay, like, do these people actually live out the things that they say um, and making sure we have a filter for that. Yeah. Then John, who will be um, in essentially our author from here on out, whether it's this gospel, the letters to John or Revelation, um, we will be from John until the end of this podcast. And so um, welcome. Welcome to John. I'm, I'm not disappointed <laughs> about that. I really like John. Uh, and so um, in John 21, we do find out at the end of this book that it's written by the guy who's the beloved disciple. So according to tradition, yes, this is John the disciple, um, though there's other guesses exactly who might have helped form this. Um, story certainly started before the temple, but it does seem like one of the last gospels to be written um, after the temple's fallen, likely a number of years after most of the other gospels have been uh, formed. And so uh, we get that. He has some structure to his writing. We're going to see seven like miraculous signs. We're going to see seven eyes. I am statements. We're going to see some of that. Um, and his context is a crowd that is a pretty blend of Jewish and Greek. And so um, he is writing to likely churches in Asia Minor, himself uh, being likely in Ephesus with Jesus's mom, as tradition goes. So as we think about the purpose of this book, I want to read to you a verse from John chapter 20, verse 31, because it will inform how we read and interpret and understand the book throughout the whole thing. So the reason John wrote this is that so, so the, the hearers would believe Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so keep that in mind that John wants to prove Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ and the son of God as you read. And then you realize like, oh, I have, I understand why he put, included this story or said what he did to prove that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And then we get the intro in the beginning, uh, which John very much is pulling from Genesis 1 and sort of starting with the exact same phrasing. But in the beginning was the word, the logos. Uh, and um, I think what John is doing is something he will continue to do in this letter, which mm-hmm. is take ideas that exist both in the minds of his Jewish hearers and in the minds of his Greek hearers. And sometimes it's concepts that are actually not the same. And he will bring them together and go, Jesus is the better version of that. So like if you're Greek, logos is like this cosmic reason, this wisdom that ultimately is behind everything in the universe and if you are a jew the logos is like the word of god is how god interacts with the world is how he creates um it's sort of the connection between god and humanity and so john is brilliant at times in his writing and i think this is a brilliant start to go hey you know that word that logos that you all have a concept of that you don't even have the same concept of well, the way you guys both describe that is exactly what Jesus is. So in the beginning was this word and the word came and it took on flesh and it was here and it walked among us. It was this Jesus. And so, um, 
it's just a tremendous opening and and he's giving us a little bit of sort of like a a teaser for the whole book where he's like look like darkness tried to overcome it but it didn't and this light didn't get put out and there's some who believed him and some who didn't and the people who believed him became children like and got new birth and we saw this glory was like the temple, but it was not like the law of Moses. It was grace and grace oriented. And so we get this sort of welcome preface to this whole book that will set the the audience, the listener, us up for where he's going to go as he tells the story. Yeah. So one of the commentaries I read compared this this opening chapter to really the opening movement of this great symphony. And John is kind of here arguing how Jesus is the embodiment of everything we have read in the Old Testament from the very first verse of Genesis to the temple to other things. And through Jesus Christ, he's bringing the whole story together. We receive grace upon grace. He's full of grace and truth. It's just so cool. And then we move to John the Baptist, uh, where most of the gospel writers go pretty early. Um, And so this group of Pharisees come out to John, who's out by the Jordan River. Uh, He's calling people to repentance. He's he's acting like a prophet in what he's doing. And so they're coming out here going like, are are you really the prophet? Are you Elijah? Because there was always a thought that Elijah, who didn't die on earth, was going to come back somehow. And and they just want to know, like, why is John doing this whole baptism repentance thing? Like, And if you're not really the prophet, why are you calling people to do this? And um, John as a common theme uh, in in, the, in John's gospel around John the Baptist is John the Baptist is full on humility and he's deflecting going, I'm not the point. Why are you asking me questions? Like I'm, I'm just preparing the way for the person you should be asking questions of. I love how John really knew his role and he embraced it. He wasn't trying to be someone he wasn't supposed to be. He knew his ministry calling and his task was to prepare the way for Christ. And it was to live a life of humanity, but walk confidently in that calling and not trying to be Jesus or a different Pharisee or a different leader or something. He knew what God had tasked him to and wanted to do that faithfully. And then it feels like he's like, you want to know what the point is? Look, he's actually over here right now. Behold, the Lamb of God, which is a loaded statement uh, in, in certainly the, the theology of the Old Testament of whether going back to Abraham, whether going back to Passover, there's so many connections and such a major motif of the one who suffers and dies on behalf of another. And so um, he says that. And John actually speaks here um, in a way that I just don't recall. Like in this past tense, he's like, I baptized this guy. And when I did this dove, like, or the Holy spirit kind of descended like a dove and and then i the voice said like look the the one who does the the spirit descends on is the one who's going to baptize not with water but with the holy spirit and like i saw this all and it was him and this new this lamb of god is here to usher in this new age so go go pay attention to him and and very much the deflection of john to go jesus is here and he is the point of this all yeah, so so John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God is referencing Isaiah, and he's referencing this fact that this entire religion, which exists on animal sacrifices in order to atone for sin, there is a, a figure and a picture of that in human form and figure. So again, that continues to argue the author John's point that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And Psalm 121, which you already referenced earlier. Yeah, I referenced it earlier. I just love the idea of God as keeper here. You know, we look to the hills, but the word kept or keep comes up like five or six times or maybe seven times in that whole verse. So we are kept by God. Yeah. And this is a psalm that was likely used uh, as people traveled to Jerusalem, that as they're heading up the foothills uh, leading up to Jerusalem, they're also singing songs that say, I look I look upon the hills for where my help comes from and my help comes from the Lord. And so um, it's such a beautiful song. Even thinking through like 
travelers singing that and, and looking to the hill in Jerusalem where God would be dwelling. Mm-hmm. And Proverbs 11. Yeah, there's a lot of little things here. Wisdom comes from being humble and there's a theme of silence. Usually you should be quiet instead of talk is the gist I'm getting from Proverbs. <laughs> yeah, don't deride your neighbors. That's that's one of the things I noted. It's like, don't deride your neighbors and those who have understanding, they hold their tongues. And so make sure you hold their tongues. We learned that plenty in James too. And, and I love sort of the comparison here. The kind-hearted woman gains honor, but a ruthless man gains only wealth. And so there's some acknowledgement that like you can be ruthless and you'll get a You'll get some money. You'll get some things like that, but that doesn't make you a good person. So, um, yeah, that, that's not true honor. So next week, what are we looking out for? So as you read Daniel, I'd encourage you to read this from the perspective, not of Daniel, but of Nebuchadnezzar, who really kind of ends up telling a lot of the story or the other kings of Babylon. And if you read it from their perspective of seeing God at work, how does this change your understanding of the story or what God is teaching you through the book of Daniel? And then in the New Testament, you're actually going to hear seven different titles or names of God just to in John chapter one. So we've already read a little bit of it, but spend some time dwelling on the significance of these different names like Lamb of God or Messiah or Son of Man and allow the, the power and just vastness of who Jesus Christ was and what he came to do uh, dwell inside of you as you explore it and, and meditate on it. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. Daniel just Sometimes there's so many pieces of backdrop of what's going on and he's going to move into conversations around like a big horn versus a little horn, all these different conversations that Daniel's going to be uh, uh, talking through as the book goes. And um, some of those are, are uh, more identifiable than others uh, historically. And so um, sometimes it's really helpful to also know what's going on Um in the lives of these people or that have happened in, in the course of history. And so um, I, I don't expect you to read all the different pieces and always parse out, but sometimes you read Daniel and just feel so abstract and yet he's using symbolism. He's using storyline that the people are very well aware of. And so um, it's probably actually jumping the gun for two weeks from now, but um, to, I'll include a link in the notes to Antiochus the fourth, which, which, stuff that happened in the destruction of the temple at the time of like the Maccabees at the time between the old Testament and the new Testament, um, stuff like that, I think is very much involved in Daniel's writing. And so, uh, making sure that, that we have an understanding at least a little bit of history, cause I think it'll make the book less weird. And then the new Testament, um, we're going to see, uh, next week there's, there's, ultimately four settings, but we're only going to get to three of them um, in these different locations and the different people that Jesus is going to speak to. And I think it's a good question. All right. What is the major lesson or takeaway from that scene and that interaction and that setting? What, how did that setting inform uh, what I should be reading and how I should be reading it? And so um, like, for example, Nicodemus and he's coming at night and all this kind of thing. What, what, how does that help me understand what is actually happening in that moment? So yeah, that's it for this week. Thanks y'all. Thanks everybody. 